This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Rust and Water, a graphic novel about a robot at the bottom of the ocean and a mermaid who becomes his best friend. Available at chasingartwork.bigcartel.com. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. Welcome to Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We have a free-form episode today with uh, 50% less planning than usual. Um, welcome, Dan, our producer. Hi. 50%. That hurts. Try 100%. That's hurtful. <laughs> no, what that's saying is that usually you plan it very well, is oh. what I'm saying. Oh, I see. That was like a compliment. I'm not used to those. And we're also <laughs> here with long-suffering co-host Justin Curry, who apparently knows what we're going to talk about today. Well, okay, yeah. I wanted to talk about it is... Uh, December 2018, and right now there are a ton of um, big blockbuster, or just great movies coming out that kind of affect what we do at conventions. Oh, um, so some of the big ones are Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which just came out uh, like a couple days ago on Friday. Um, Bumblebee's right around the corner. Um, those are the two I'm really excited about. Aquaman. Aquaman. I see Aquaman. what's happening. This episode is really going to be about how trends affect purchasing at shows. How trends affect purchasing oh. at shows and the pressure um, that gets put on there. Because just recently, like I was on Instagram yesterday, and every single artist that I know and look up to is doing um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse fan art right now. It is just flooding my feed. And it's all amazing. Um, and I, I saw the movie and I loved it. And now there's this kind of building, um, bit of like building pressure and obligation that I should be doing something t for it as well. And I'm not sure how much of that is me wanting to do it and how much of it is my kind of workplace, like my coworkers are all doing it. So should I be are you, doing Are you it? doing it, Greg? Greg's rummaging around again. Um, so, but do you want to do it? Do you want, are you so inspired by this film that you want to create a Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse piece? Yes. Okay, then do but it. But then it also, <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, it, I think it's mostly me. Okay, you, so. Uh, or, but yeah. the question is, are these people that you see in your Instagram feeds, uh, are they doing this to jump on the bandwagon and try and get more like, are, are they chasing the trend and trying to gain more attention because it just happens to coincide with this movie? I think there's a percentage of that, yeah. yes. Yeah, of course. And that happens not just in art, but YouTube trends, uh, uh, gummy versus real challenge. You guys familiar with that one? No. It was a thing last uh, summer, and it was like a whole bunch of different YouTubers did the exact same thing where they take real food and then gummy food like a real piece of pizza and a gummy piece of pizza it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous it's ridiculous that they make gummy pizza but uh it's something that happens all the time people jump on a bandwagon yeah. and just try to milk it and get as much out of it now i don't I'm not saying your, your friends are doing that but um but there's probably a portion of it saying yeah spider-man's big right now okay let's call a spade a spade though mm -hmm. they are jumping on the bandwagon well right? inten intentionally or not they are yes no this, no it is intentional it's intentional. If you if uh, if a film is relevant and you lean into that relevancy so that you can seem relevant, get the hits, been, get the shares, yeah, get the, then get the you're views. jumping on the bandwagon. The absolutely mm -hmm. true. I did a Spider-Man piece uh, because of my absolute love of the Spider-Man game that we were playing, mm -hmm. and they didn't have the black suit, my favorite suit, so that I went away and I was like, well, 
if I can't have a black suit Spider-Man the way I like it, I'll just draw it myself. Um, that's not an option on the game? Not an option. There's like a million suits you can get. Yeah. I, I feel like that's DLC that's it's coming. It's gotta be, yeah. Like, yeah the, the like, why suit, would you not want that? Yeah, it's, it's such a famous one. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it's tied up into the licensing of uh, what it means. It's all Sony. That game is a Sony PlayStation game. But right? Sony, like the games versus the shows versus the TV, those are all different licensing agreements under okay. different contracts. So, right. I had a sudden and very unflattering feeling about Spider-Verse this morning when I was coming. Like, I'm super excited to see it. Like, I've heard nothing but good is, things. Is good Absolutely movie? true. But, you know, there are these, like, there's these wheels of power that turn up at, up at the corporate level. Right? It's like why we got Guardians of the Galaxy was a stock move from Marvel to take Z-list characters. And if they could have a movie that made $100 million, it made the IP value of their total portfolio higher. That's why they picked this low thing. But then that movie right? felt like it didn't have the corporate um, totally true. fingers in it. Like, And same yeah. with the Spider-Verse. But like, it is intru- and so what I'm saying is look at Into the Spider-Verse. And we know that movies, I'd love to know. How many of those characters that Sony has, it was tied into the license that you must make a movie or a film before X date or you lose control that's of the side. That's why we got the Andrew Garfield films. I'm sure yeah. that's why. And I those think that's were true. trash that were just pumped out. Yeah, I hope but so. But Spider-Verse does not feel like that at all. No. Well, you can have a, a heartfelt. So here's a good thing we could talk about. Can you have a heartfelt, honest, creative team that is following a corporate mandate? I think so. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's what Guardians of the Galaxy is. Yeah, right. So, you can have you can be both things. We can like stuff and also rail <laughs> against corporate control. I think that's okay. <laughs> I can like stuff. I'm gonna go see it. They're getting my money. So I is bought there, ten tickets yesterday for my whole family. But is there going is there is there going to be demand now that you guys are kind of in the you know the downtime between conventions, so you're not going to start up again until maybe February. Will there be a demand for Spider-Man stuff because of this film? I predict we will see a lot of Into the Spider-Verse fan art in the first couple of conventions. Um, Aquaman, probably not as much. Bumblebee, I suspect as well. We should also mention that all of these movies are getting pretty good reviews. Yeah, like they're, they're which is like great. it's not. Um, Sometimes it's hit or miss at this time of year, uh, as far as like Christmas, I don't want to call them blockbusters, but there are a few movies. And I think also I should mention, I talked about this on my Star Wars podcast. This is the first time in five years that we've not had a Star Wars, or first time in four years that we've not had a Star Wars movie at Christmas time. We kind of needed the break. So. Yeah, yeah, but I think a lot of studios are taking advantage of that. Yeah. Do you think anybody would be releasing Aquaman right now if there was a Star Wars film in the theaters? Yeah, true. Right, true. that's going to be taking in all the money. So this it's kind of an open season this time of year. And um, the Aquaman trailer looks fair a bit like a Star Wars trailer, the way it's like focusing on ships fighting and like flashy laser blasts. But the blast. reviews are quite uh, like I was expecting twenty-five to thirty-five percent Rotten Tomatoes score, mm-hmm. and the first scores are in, and it's like sixties to seventies. Like it's people seem to be enjoying it more than I C's get degrees. Uh, uh, maybe I will go see that movie. I, plus, there was a there was a preview last night here in Winnipeg, and uh, mm-hmm. I knew a few people who went to it and said it was good. So I'll, I would trust that more than Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. Here's uh, the other thing. Okay, so as long as we're pontificating about quality and corporate mastership, um, can a movie, if anyone goes to Aquaman expecting it to be like a fine piece of cinema, I think they've set their expectations too high. I think people going into Aquaman <laughs> should be going into a movie expecting like a fun 
right? Yeah. Maybe a bit is that silly. Because you don't like the character of Aquaman, or is no? That... What I'm saying is that, <laughs> right? The same way as if you go and see Superman, right? Like you're you're hoping that it will be fine cinema, but nobody promised you that in the title of the film. No, but there right? is a lot of pressure on DC to do well with this one, yeah, because of the the so-called failure of the other Batman and Superman movies of yeah. recent times. So and Suicide Squad. So there's like people. Yeah. It should be good, um, but you're right. I mean, you have to go into any of these films with like low expectations. I think. But then, like the Avengers Infinity War, like I felt like that was a that was a huge, like monumental movie, and just the history of like movies and storytelling, like that many franchises and films all leading up to like that one event and not like falling on its face, like that was. That was pretty special. Yeah, they did a great job with that. Yeah, so Just like there the is kind of an expectation that like superhero movies can be fairly monumental. They, they can be. Yeah. They can be, but it's like I think that that's the exception to the rule. I'd love it to be the rule. I like wish everybody took all movies that they made and made them great. But not everyone goes to the movies for the same thing. Like as much as I want, you know, every film to have some gravitas. If every film did, They'd all, they'd all, if Christmas came every day. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the, um, going back to the Star Wars thing, part of the thing people, you know, Solo, the last one that came out, which I just watched again yesterday, um, and I love it. I think it's a great movie, but it didn't do as well because people th said we were a little too, we had too much Star Wars too quickly. And so. so I think that's part of the issue is that uh, you get too many of these things too often and it loses its gravitas. It loses its, its special nature because mm -hmm. there's so much of it. Dad, what a bore you are. You no longer amuse me. I am currently, while we are recording this podcast, also um, making some art. I was going to make a comment about mass-produced media, and then I was looking down at my light table, my print, and then the drawings that I'm doing, and I'm realizing that I am, like, right now, super meta- what, making mass-produced commercial making art. Mass, what are you doing right now? Tell us what you're doing. Okay, so um, the uh, Baby Metal Apocrypha book did well enough that Z2 Comics wanted to do a, a 12 by 18 hardcover slipcase super edition. Mm -hmm. uh, they're only printing 500 of them, and only they for asked the hardcore fans. Yeah, hardcore fans were like, as a you know, if you saw the one they did for Murder Ballads, it's just like it feels like an art book more than a graphic novel. And so I feel very fortunate that they are giving my project the same treatment. And they asked that I um, include, oh, well, I suggested it actually, I should say, I should do something special for each of those. And we were going to do, I was going to just sketch in each one real quick. And then uh, time constraints and travel stuff, it was like, well, no, maybe you can do a book plate. And to me, a book plate isn't, a book plate, dear listener, is just a sticker that you sign and then you ship back to the to the distributor and then they stick them in the books. And it's they're good if you just want a signature, but it's, I don't know, it feels less authentic in some way. So I wanted to do something different. So I suggested that I would do a print. Like I do these sort of distress pages. So of this like mythology book that I'm working on. So I did one of these pages without any of the content on it. I just printed them as they are. They're on like, what is this, 60 pound cardstock? It's a cardstock, yeah. Yeah. And then, so it has like a, a, water, a watercolor kind of wash on it and then printing and like some weird esoteric symbols on it. And then on top of that, I'm doing a physical smear, like a Rorschach blot 
of actual ink, like printing ink on that, and then each one of those kind of looks like a weird cloud, nebulous sort of thing. 100%. You start unique. with this like almost abstract splash of paint that's different on every single page, that's and right. then you build the drawing and from then I, that. And then I did 15 drawings, which I have partially in a stack here. I did 15 drawings. Um, which I like sort of riffed out basic forms of shapes and um, to draw quickly is tricky because of the math that's involved in drawing if you're drawing faces anyway and so I did these sort of templates that would allow me to put a light box underneath this ink splash and then find the right place for where the face or the element would fit in that thing quickly and then do a drawing on that and I changed the drawing so that each face is slightly different but it allows me to move quickly through 500 illustrations. Because you have to do 500 illustrations in a very short amount of time That's to right. meet the deadline. To meet this. the deadline. It's almost like uh, when comic uh, comic artists draw over their blue lines. That's right. Yeah, yeah. similar. You're taking... just, I'm skipping the blue line step because I can't yeah. remove it. Um, and the trick here is that if you take 500 drawings times five minutes per drawing, which is all I can take on the drawing stage, right? That's 40 hours straight of work. Sure. But this is, you're talking about, but this is not mass produced. This is like each one is individually. Yeah. You're crafting these individually, even though you are using, you know, techniques to speed things along, you're still drawing each one. That's true, I suppose. It's just, um, I guess this is the, okay, so here's the question. What constant, where is the dividing line between art and commercial art, and should there be one? Uh, right? I think in... A, in a, commercial art means you get paid for it. Well, <laughs> I wish it were that simple, right? Because then ga all gallery work would be commercial art. Well, it is, isn't it? No, no there's a fine distinction. Okay, People know. get very upset. <laughs> People get very upset at the notion. That made for consumption. Yeah. Thing. Whereas I feel like uh, what I'm trying to participate in is the democratization of art, right? Like that while the book is expensive, this big slipcase edition is expensive, it's like $199, right? You get three prints with it, you get a piece of original art with it, Ooh. and you get a gorgeous, like huge 12 by 18 like volume like the art printed at the size that it was created is this at. the one that you retweeted somebody who did a youtube video that was yeah. unboxing yes it looks really good yes. yeah i watched that video and it looks amazing yeah and she was very excited to get it she oh. had like the prototype right yeah or, yeah that's yeah, right yeah. it was not the, the actual one it was yeah. like a, so callie got the very first one ever made they sent to her Wow. Um, because they saw some videos, and they being the people um, at Amuse and the people at C2 Comics were just so overwhelmed with her, uh, like, guileless enthusiasm related to the Baby Metal merchandise that she did these unboxing videos for. And, um, you know, the people at Z2 said, like, you know, we should just send her one of these. And it's like, how can we get it to her the quickest? And so... Um, when they were getting their proofs, they actually, uh, as I understand it, the very first proof was not sent to Z2. It was sent to oh, her wow. instead. So <laughs> before crazy. even I held one or ever saw one or even know that it actually worked, that the whole thing was together, she was opening one on the Internet. And it wow. was a really cool, really cool thing to watch. She did a great watch. job, yeah. Yeah. Can we send her our stuff? We should. We should. I, I have a, uh, a secret. Well, it's not a secret if we put it on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I had a, uh, a thank you gift I was going to send okay. along to her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's. So, if you're listening, baby metal fans, keep it a secret from her. 
What if she's listening? Oh, well, it's too late then. <laughs> we really appreciate everything you've done. I think I just created a work of art. If you have a, a fan base that's super engaged, right, and they are asking for more stuff, there's a point at which you can overdo it. And just like now you're printing on lunchboxes and you're making like fruit roll-ups that also have Guardians of the Galaxy on them and just whatever. I feel like that's a bridge too far. But, um, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that 500 books that are limited with some special attention that, yes, are more expensive, but it's because the labor involved and the cost per unit is so high for us to produce them that we have to do it that way. Um, it's kind of like a way that you can try to give back to your fans um, a little bit. But then the flip side for me is my confliction is that not everyone can have it. And so right, you're purposely, it, you're, you know, it's the, true, but you're kind of purposely leaving some people out. So I don't know. I, I'm always, it's like push pull for me. Yeah, the like, opposite end of that spectrum is then you might have 3000 books sitting in a warehouse that never get sold because you printed too many. Yeah, that's true. You could end up with how that do these problem. how do these uh, how do people get these limited edition books? They have to order it. So yeah, they're available only through the Z Two Comics website. Um, they have to order it, and there was a few that asked for like special like messages or whatever added into them. So I'm doing that into the art as well. Wow, um, that to me sounds like the, anybody who really wants it will get it. I guess like, so, there yeah. probably will be some disappointed people who didn't get in there, but. Um, there'll be another opportunity for them to get something else at some point. Like that's not, you can't worry about those people too much. Um, you, you, know. you, you had asked us, but I do worry about this. them, Dan. <laughs> Don't worry about them. They're, they're, they'll be fine. It's a part of me. That's a teacher that doesn't want to leave anyone. Behind. Yeah, no, I know. I, I get that. So like you had asked us earlier in the studio, um, both Sam and I, how many things that are we such a big fan of that we will spend like a couple hundred dollars to get that limited edition, that really special, item that they're yeah and without missing a beat like i wasn't even finished the question sam's like sailor moon wants yeah so really sam okay. is a huge sailor moon fan and owns some very exclusive uh rare sailor moon merchandise um greg do you have some special limited edition not from fandom like i guess like from archaeology i have this really um expensive nautilus shell that i just when I was in my formative years, I was really... Don't you have some um, original comic book pages? Oh, I have plenty. Yeah, I have yeah. a whole bunch of art. But like, um, like I have a bunch of original, uh, you know, like I'm a huge Star Trek nerd. So I have a bunch of Star Trek pages that I got. And, but I, I more connect the story with it. So I don't go to a show, for example, and go hunting for like Star Trek pages. But it just so happened that the right conversation led to the right person, led to the right thing. And I just sort of was like, oh, well, this is the, I guess this was the one I was supposed to, supposed to get. Um, I'm different than other fans. Well, and here's the thing too, in my misprint youth, I owned a comic store mm -hmm. and I was actively discouraging speculators. Like the one thing hopefully that I'm known for uh, in my comic book sales time is that I discourage people from buying special variant covers. I discourage them from buying rare things. Those I, are going to be worth a lot someday. Right, because... <laughs> you know what? They're not, they're not though. Because they aren't, <laughs> because they're mass-produced. So, like, something that's limited to 500 actually is rare. Yeah. Something that they printed 
45,000 of like an alt cover of Spider-Man. With it's, a special foil. Yeah, it's not. Guys are reading my mind. I'm thinking of the Todd McFarlane, Spider-Man, the silver. Remember they, they had mm-hmm. the silver, when he first went on to Amazing Spider-Man, the silver, was or was it just Spider-Man? I don't remember. It was a new, it was a new title. I know which okay. one you're talking about anyway, where they printed it on silver and printed it on gold. gold right? And, they printed and I had it, yeah. the silver one was the more rare one. I had the silver one and I was like, oh, this is going to, I, I mean, I still read it. I still wanted to read the, the story, but um, I kept very good, good care of that book and I had a couple comics like that and then they all got ruined in the flood of 97. Uh, but, uh, but I want um, some stuff in the flood of 1972. There, there was not like I, I've since learned that that is one of the, mo- the best selling comic books of all time, mm-hmm. and they're not worth a lot because there's so there's still a ton of them out there. But here's the real value of anything, right? Anything creative. The real value is what you said. You read it and yeah. you liked it. Like I always, always uh, was for me was was reading the story, and and that was always first and foremost. I had a friend who collected books uh, who never opened them. You keep them in the bag and just see that. Me, yeah, I hate I hate that like, idea. What's the point? Yeah, but he had, here's, he had Lobo number one. Never read it. So let's come around. So um, both Justin and I are Todd McFarlane fans. I think yeah. both of his oh, career yeah. and his work. I am as well. Uh, and if you look at how the how Marvel, like they leaned into what was selling, right? People are like, "Wow, this is a runaway success. People really want it. What can we do? What can we give to people that seems like added value?" I think at some level. In editorial, that was the first question. What can we give that feels like added value? They looked into their distributors and their actual manufacturers, like, hey, we have this gold foil, we have this gold, let's try something, right? The fact that it worked so well created so many imitators, and you yes, got there all, was a big right? trend of that after after that. It was like the late mid to late nineties, right? Was like and that's that you know we literally in comics you call it this the, the speculation boom right, right. of the nineties where everyone was buying up like one comic to read and two or three to put away because they'd be worth something. And if there was two or three to put away, like if it, if it could meet the demand, what no one realized was then it wasn't going to be rare. Right. Right. If you could buy four when you got there, it's not rare. Exactly. <laughs> right. Same thing with Star Wars toys. My friend, when the prequels came out, went lined up at Toys R Us the night midnight and bought every single figure for the Phantom Menace. And he had them when I, I was a, a friend I used to live with, and he had them all on his wall on display. And I'm like, those are not going to be worth anything because in, when the original Star Wars film came out, they didn't make very many toys for it. Those are rare. These ones are not. Everybody has those Phantom Menace figures. And uh, I only bought a Darth Maul one because I thought he was cool. It's irresistible. So I was having a thought today. I was dropping my kids off at school, and somebody uh, tweeted at me a um, some pretty great stats. Like, as a former comic store owner, you would often keep track of the top-selling books. There's a lot of websites that do it. Oh, they yeah. rank them, like, in the top 20 for manga, for graphic novels, whatever. And Apocrypha was... Um, uh, number 14 on one of these lists. Nice. Yeah, huge. Like, and for me, as a former comic store owner and orderer, and now a comic maker, like to feel that full loop come around and to be ranked among, like, some pretty what, legit. What are, what are the other titles on that list? Uh, I couldn't. I'd have to dig it up. Is it I, like Spider-Man and big titles? But it's again? like big titles. It's like Walking Dead and Monstrous, oh, okay. and like these other titles are right up there around us. Um, Harper Lee's new. To Kill a Mockingbird blew us all out of the water, but, um, but okay. The reason I bring this up is, it is so it's my most successful in terms of reaching the broadest audience, right? For sheer numbers. But in the long run, whatever money that I make from it, I'm going to spend on stuff on my kids, and we're just going to carry on with life, right? A year from now, it won't affect the bank account the way people think big books do, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, but if I think about myself as a kid picking up that book that I didn't really know what comics were and finding it, those books were mass market books. Oh, yeah. Right? The yeah. books that reached me, that actually found me where I was in my life, in my dad's barber shop, right? Not like the barber my dad went to. Um, stack of coverless comics. Picking those up, they were X-Men and ROM, right? It was Chris Claremont's big run of X-Men and the original ROM stuff with the Dire Wraith. No covers. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't figure out why these monsters were in all of the books on this stack. Like, I didn't understand a crossover event. Like, there was this majesty and this magic, and there was, you know. So for me to be inspired to make stuff as a result of that event was not tied to how mass market, how successful, what a big deal it was that they had, you know, 100,000 issues out in circulation. So I started, like, on the drive here, I was thinking about, like, the impact that you as an artist have if you quote unquote make it big, right? Or at least have a big distribution for at least one moment that there is maybe a dozen other people down the, you know, down the line of history who might say, Hey, I could do that. Right. And if for no other reason, I think maybe that's what all that you know, that's a good thing that can be taken out of the big corporate machine that gets stuff everywhere. It, 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 yeah, the distribution right. gets it to as many people as possible. Yeah, and that's and you, thing. you can't be what you can't see, right? Sure. So, I don't know. However, there's the other part of me that gets really annoyed when as soon as a title in comic book land hits halfway decent, they have 10 other spin-off titles with less care taken in a lot of instances. Not always, but... It's like when a, a big movie comes out and it would they'd have all those sequels direct to VHS. Mm. It's like okay, we did something really right. Now let's cash in on its good name. Yeah, it's not just it's not just comic books. It's movies. It's TV spinoff TV shows. Think back to like the '80s when they spin off. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. What's a spinoff? Well, Mork and Mindy was a spinoff of Happy Days. Wait, wait, that's a good one though. Is What's that up? true? Yes, of course it is. Mork and Mindy came out of Happy Days? Yeah. Did Mork show up on Happy yeah. Days first? You're making that up? No, I'm not. It's a well-known fact. I am Perfect never Strangers. The no. I, wait, we're not, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> okay. We can't move past this. Mork and Mindy started in Happy Days? Yeah, it was an episode, a couple episodes where Mork showed up and it, as an alien. This is, again, it's, and it's funny because we mentioned Happy Days because the term jumping the shark comes from Happy Days. But um, but it was a bit of those gimmicky things they did to try and boost viewership where they had an alien show up and talk to Richie Cunningham about whatever. What? I have to find... Okay, it validates my entire argument. Spinoffs are great. I think we should well, make more. Not always, though. But, but right? J- Justin, you were about to mention Perfect Strangers and... Um, Family Matters. Yes. The cop from... Yeah. I forget his name. It's, it's Reginald Valjean is the name of the actor. I only know because I heard somebody talk. He was also in Die Hard playing yeah, the same yeah. character. Playing the same cop. <laughs> <laughs> there was a joke going around that they thought it was the same guy. Like They just made that, except he's in L.A. and Family Matters is in uh, Chicago. Um, but not all spinoffs are good. But he got um, transferred after the Nakatomi incident, that's right, I'm sure. That's right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but from, from that, we get uh, Urkel, which is a, a really, originally a fringe character. That's right. Became super popular. Became and pushed, the star of the show. But pushed it forward. Um, and I don't know that it's always a great decision when they do that kind of stuff. Same with uh, when they bring a kid in, when a sitcom is, you know, in its later years, they bring a new child in to make things 
well, more but, exciting. And then sometimes it works well. Like if you look at The Walking Dead, you know, whatever you think about how long it's run and whatever, the comic is an incredible achievement. And the fact the show has run so long is an incredible achievement, whether you like zombies or not. But they were very different from the get-go. And there was a bunch of characters that if you read the books, you were like, oh, well, these side characters that don't appear in the books, clearly they're going to murder. They're going to kill all those guys for sure. Because we've never seen them before. They're probably just there to be eaten. And then I think fan response to people, to the cast, the actors themselves, filling in those roles so much, it became like a bad idea to get rid of them. Yeah, right? but that I think ultimately hurt the show because one of the things I really enjoyed about it was that anybody could die. That was one of the things yeah. that we learned. Anybody can still die. Uh, Good example of that is uh, Breaking Bad. Uh, the character of Jesse was supposed to die third episode. Jesse was not supposed to be in that show past like the first. That's his like sidekick or whatever. Yeah, yeah. He was supposed to be killed off like that first time. He gets like beaten within the inch of life. He was actually supposed to be killed, but everybody liked him, so they kept him around. There's also stories like that. Frasier was like that as well on Cheers. Yeah, yeah. Frasier was only supposed to be there for like a six episode arc and then stick around. And it goes how, how on did show. we get here? It was my fault. I okay, got so no, how we got here was talking about how tangents and spinoffs produce work that people like, and then they want to follow it, and so... And then we got on a tangent. We got on a tangent, but we're on topic in that when the audience responds to something, and this comes right back to what you were talking about, when the audience responds to something, and you have the ability to help facilitate that need, right? Is there anything wrong with that? So we're going to see tons of Spider-Verse art on the show floor in comic book land, licensed or unlicensed. It's just all going to be there. And people are going to like it, and they're going to buy it. And uh, what's wrong? I don't know. Is there something wrong with that? Are you they, selling out? If did you they get joy? Some people see it as, okay, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. There is now a pile of gold there, and I can go and grab a little bit and take some of that. Or you can see it as a springboard to a, like take it somewhere further. See, I took it... Now, again, I haven't seen the movie, but I know enough about it to, to know that it breaks a lot of the rules in how storytelling is done. It puts in a big ensemble cast in a really great way. It gave me a lot of hope that um, studios will take a risk on different formulas. It was definitely, yeah, a risk. It was a different style and a different... I'm sorry. Different... Uh, <laughs> Just a different type of movie, and especially after like those last two Sony Spider-Man movies, which were just like they were going through the motions of making a superhero movie, and no risks were taken. And it... I don't know. See, I don't know that they were going through the motions. I think that they had to make those films to fulfill the, you know, they uh, wanted to keep the license. They right? wanted to keep the license. Uh, Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire weren't interested They're... in doing anymore. That's right. Um, so they they decided to reboot it. That was the mistake. Um, the whole idea of rebooting Spider-Man. They should have done the, the... If they'd done the animated thing then, that probably would have been a better choice. But maybe they didn't feel confident in an animated feature. Like, this is this movie is okay, but, breaking past the typical audience that goes to animated films. So right? we're already into the, fallacy, the fan fallacy that is a couple of people are making those decisions. Right. No, I get yeah. it. Right? More than, more than and, a couple people. And it just drives me crazy when, I mean, I, I do it, I'm guilty of it, when the mics are off of saying like, why didn't they do this? And why didn't they do that? And you know, whatever. <laughs> I but, do that when the mics are on. Right? But the truth is that hundreds of people, you know, I'm, I'm working on a film project right now and a film dies a thousand deaths before it gets made. Right? It's, it try, you try and try and try and try again. And when you finally get something that a studio will say, yeah, we'll give you 
you know, $15 million to work on that. You're just so relieved that you're willing to make some concessions so, because but, you're trying to, and this is hundreds of people are being employed by this and none of them are employed until you finally land it. Right. And so there's this, this notion that somehow everyone gets, you know, like someone is just turning the dials at the top and if only they had made the right decision, everything would be good. That was, that'd be true if there wasn't thousands of market forces at play to how a $100 million movie is released. Yeah, but I do think that there was, at the top, there were a few people who decided to make another Spider-Man movie who said, we have to make another movie or else we lose the license. That was the, that was the impetus behind that series of films. Sure, yeah. Right? Then from there it becomes what kind of Spider-Man movie, who do we cast, all then it filters down into all those other decisions which brings us the final product. Well, but you're but, also having, you're having a, you're assuming that the top down happens before the bottom up happens. What you also have is a group of people who are willing to make Spider-Man movies, letting the studios know, throwing their hats in the ring, giving pitches and scripts and concepts. And so you have hundreds of these Spider-Man maybes, right? And then you have a dozen ways in which it can happen. And there's this like weird pyramid of choose your own adventure before the one thing, one of the ideas at the bottom, the kernel of that reaches the person that's like, yes, here's 62 days of shooting and a hundred million dollars, go do it. So we're lucky to get anything good. That's basically <laughs> what I'm saying. Wallop and whip snappers. I want to get back to something you said about um, making art for lunchboxes. Yes. Justin kind of did that recently for Ant-Man and the Wasp. You, yeah. you made some art, created some art that is, is an option for somebody to put on a lunchbox. So correct? when, um, yeah, like, so when Ant-Man and Wasp was about to come out, like the first teaser's out, the trailer's coming, um, people who make lunchboxes, people who make pillowcases, people who make toys, all those manufacturers need official Marvel artwork, approved artwork, to put on their packaging. Yes. Um, so Marvel sends out this catalog of basically, here is approved Ant-Man and Wasp art, uh, pick which ones you want, and like that's what you can use. And so that's where my artwork ended up. So I still don't really have any idea where it ended up. I you haven't seen anything in this. No, I, I and I still have to ask my like I'm still I'm working with Marvel again now, and I plan on asking them if they have any idea. But I don't even know if they know because the catalog goes out, and then I'm not sure what happens. Someone's going to bring you a pillowcase design. I really hope so. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. But. Um, but I mean, is that no? So you're talking about um, you know commercial art. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with with what you've done. It's it's something that's necessary. Um, It's not like art in the sense of like being displayed in a gallery, but it is still art and it's still uh, valuable. And it does provide some joy for people who who receive it. Like I was going to buy my kids an Ant-Man and the Wasp sheet set. They have we have Star Wars. We have a bunch of different licensed characters. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun. They love that stuff. Yeah, my wife says uh, my wife Tara says that people just need a way to vote with their dollars. Yeah. Right. Right. That, that's that's what you're really doing is you're providing people with a way to say yes, this more of this, more of this. Yeah, because... and it's a way to, for you to show your fandom on things. And I mean, if I could have like a king size Star Wars sheet set, I would. I would absolutely do that. They say, they probably do make that. I shouldn't even <laughs> dismiss that because I'm sure it is a thing. Uh, or one of those. Uh, um, what's the thing? The Tauntaun zip. Have you seen the Tauntaun um, oh, sleeping yeah. <laughs> bag? Where you get inside the Tauntaun and yeah, it's like intestines on yeah. the inside. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> um, anyway, that kind of stuff. I, but I think that uh, 
it's interesting how um, this art kind of gets dismissed a lot of the time because you see it on a packaging or you see it on a thing. It's, oh, yeah, it's, it's Ant-Man and the Wasp and you buy it and give it as a gift, but you don't really think about where that art came from. Uh, okay, but uh, art is emotion, right? This, it's when people see something, they feel it right away, they respond to that, and they have an emotional connection to it, and that's what's being sold back to us, right? This nostalgia, like, I am super excited, like nerd level 11, over the Dark Crystal oh, show yeah. that's being done, right? And did you but get to see the cast? Yeah, it's incredible. Oh, but yeah. it's also somebody realizing that there's a whole bunch of us with really strong emotions around a property that's 40 years old. Is it that old? Yeah. 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 Jeez. Right? Uh, is it? I think so. Something. Yeah. I was, a, it's I was close. a kid when it came out, so. Well, so it's 50 years old now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to look it up. Go we'll look it up. Talking. But the point is that that... It's a smart business decision to present people more content that they want to consume. It's a, it's um, a... It has integrity if the creative team is brought on with love first and yeah. profit second, right? right. Like right. everyone should be profit for their work. If you're working hard, you should be paid a fair wage. I don't care if you're flipping burgers or drawing pictures. Like you should, if you put in 40 hours of work, you should be able to live. Right, so I have no trouble with people being paid a fair wage to do stuff like that. In fact, I encourage it, um, <laughs> legislators. But the uh, the notion that somehow all art should be free, right? Oh, no, I'm not Which is that. like where people go sometimes with art. It's like, oh well, you know, art has no intrinsic value, you so like, it should be. You like doing it, so why yeah. would you charge? Me yeah, for why it? would you charge me if you like <laughs> it? Um, 1982 is when that film came out. So 30, 36 years old. Close. You're close. Close. 40. So, yeah. But I do remember seeing it as a kid. And nostalgia has such a great value and is so popular. We have a whole generation of people who grew up on these properties, who grew up on these movies, TV shows, comic books, and now we're adults and we still love these things. And now we have kids who are loving these things because we love these things. So it's really kind of a neat place. But So that's why all this, these things are coming back. Um, it's just whether or not... I guess they do a good job, in our opinion, on this stuff is kind of the issue. Right? Okay, so and prior to, like, 2000 forward, like, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, were was there this recycling, this rehashing of nostalgia? Was this no. a thing that was around? Like, Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that like, far back. Um, okay, so going back to, like, the 50s, 60s, 70s, if you look at, like, trends in the market forces, mm-hmm. uh, new content was considered the way you made money. And people who were in sort of positions of power in, you know, publishing and media and whatever it was in print, they would be paid exorbitant sums of money because they were tastemakers. They were people who could pick, be the hit pickers, right? They would find someone and be like, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. And then sometimes it would be, you make a ton of money. It was later, it was like in the 80s around when sort of, the forces that be realized you could make ancillary that, monies. When did all the sequels start? That's up? when that started, yeah. right? When you started getting sequels to movies. And when we were kids, the idea was that a sequel was never better than the first yeah, one. Yeah, no, no, that's true. Right. It was just yep. a cash grab? It, it was yep. just right. Passion. But you would watch it out of sort of some love and loyalty, and you'd laugh, and it would always be like half the budget or a quarter of the budget of the first one, and it would very rarely have the star in it. And if it did, you kind of were like, oh... I'm sorry for that person because yeah, they have to be in the actor, sequel. Yeah, actor, actress that just was a lookalike. Right? Yeah. And now there's more prestige 
around the idea that something could be a franchise. It's almost right? standard operating procedure to, to plan for a sequel. If, yeah. if a movie makes a certain amount of money in the box office, then you know, oh, there'll be a sequel. They, yeah. Regardless of what the story is, regardless of if it needs a sequel. They yeah. almost immediately announce it these days. Like uh, you were saying, Into the Spider-Verse already has announced they want to do a Gwen Stacy um, based on yeah, the Spider-Man, success of yeah. the, like, the opening couple of days. Yeah. They're going to green light the next yeah. project. And it's interesting, uh, although there are exceptions to that sequel rule because we did have Empire Strikes Back and we did have... Yeah. I mean, Temple of Doom is not seen as a, as good a movie, I don't think, as oh, the I, first one. I really like because it. Well, I do it's, too, but, but it's... Uh, because but, it showers the world in racism. Is that, that why? It's also the, it was also the... Uh, the um, impetus behind creating the PG-13 movie rating, uh, right. which didn't exist before that. It's because of the heart scene where he tears the heart out of the guy's chest. Uh, yes, mom. it is, but it is also very <laughs> racist. Um, but um, those were seen as good movies. Even like The Godfather Part Two was a good movie. Yeah. So there are good ones, but there oh, yeah, are, yeah. for every one of those, there's 10 subpar sequels. Jaws 2 comes to mind as being like not a great sequel to a, an amazing film. Yeah. Uh, even though they had Roy Scheider in it, it was like, it was all the cast coming back, but they did not get Steven Spielberg back. Yeah. And that's what they needed to have that be a good movie. Yeah. So anyway. Well, and you see those creative teams stick together now. Well, okay. So yeah, of- yeah. And actors stick with the same directors quite often. Yeah. But it comes back around to this notion of it's hundreds of people who need jobs who have chosen this as a profession. And so if you can build in a franchisable right, uh, model, then now you have a creative team, a studio, like a physical studio, like you know, for doing internal shooting, stuff like that, where all these people can be employed and they can look over the next five or 10 years and say, hey, we're making these five movies. Everyone has a job. It's like in film, job security is not a thing, right? No. So you, it's feast and famine. and. So in a way, it's building some stability into an otherwise difficult to survive system. The sequel is more stable than new project. Yeah, well, and, yeah. and they do better in um, box office than most original. That's what that's what I get upset about is that's when I see. Well, yeah. I see a great film that has a good premise that doesn't do well in the box office because it's an original. Scott or Pilgrim. Yeah, yeah. Scott no Pilgrim That's a great example. Died in the box. That's office. such a good movie. Um, Amazing. Film. Even well, Pacific Rim did okay. But it, it was like one of the only original concepts to come out that year, 2014, I think. And it, I love the movie, but it did not do as well as it should have. Mm-hmm. And now then it we see those... a horrible sequel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now we see those. I enjoyed it. <laughs> it was I wasn't okay. expecting anything, so yeah, I enjoyed it. But... Now we see all those original ideas, all those original IP land on streaming services. Yes. Instead. Maybe it was better when I couldn't see what I was up against. How this whole rant started, this whole conversation started with. Stuff is popular right now, and will it show up in the marketplace as a result, right? And if you make art for people that they want, more power to you, essentially, right? Do it from a place of love. Do it from a place of love. Not from a place of greed, which I think is a really good balance I think we have here in the studio. We're not, we don't cash in. Any well, anytime we've tried, we failed. Yeah, I used I've tried that a couple times yeah. back in. You know, in full in disclosure, there's plenty of times, Dan, where Justin and I have been like, "Oh, this is a thing that we should try because it seems to be what people want," and if that's our motivation, the work just is not. It's not. It's not fulsome, yeah. right? <laughs> and so people don't. They they can feel it, and then if we do something like some weird obscure thing that we're just like, you know. Like we're gonna do some tremors Secret art, of and it's Nim gonna be was incredible. My favorite one for that. Right? I did Secret of Nim because I'm a huge fan of the film, and like nobody talks about that film really anymore. But yeah. I did the print and brought it out, and like it was a resounding success. And 
Again, just came from a place of love. It's the nostalgia. We all remember that movie as kids right. and so dark and impactful and, and memorable. Well, and all my World of War weird work is essentially, you know, it's, it's my own IP because I'm changing the characters enough. But it's essentially fanfic of the good parts of the golden age of comics and horror. Yeah. Right? Try, so you just, you know, you put what you love into it and it comes out. Are you guys going to do some, I know I asked this earlier, but are you going to do some Spider-Man uh, stuff? Spider-Verse I, stuff? I would like to, but it needs, the idea needs to evolve organically. Yeah. I can't, like, I feel like a lot of what I'm seeing is just, like, the, the easiest answer. Like, it's riffing off the movie poster, which is an amazing poster of Spider-Man falling, like, up into the city. Like, it's a gorgeous shot. Um, so it's, like, it's generic kind of Gwen Stacy art and, and Miles Morales art. Um, so one, one idea that I've been toying around with is there's a, there's a new character that I'm Spoil- not familiar. Spoiler, I have not seen it till <laughs> Thursday. It's the character with the robotic. Oh, you um, didn't know about her, but I did. Yeah, okay, Penny yeah. Parker. I don't know about it. Yes. Yeah, sh- okay, spoiler. Well, there's comics of her. She's got a robotic <laughs> mech. So I want to do maybe something with yeah, robotic Yeah, it's a good mech. fit. Yeah. Yes, so of course. But okay, so here's the like difference. Character. So when, uh, and I'll just armchair quarterback from across the studio. When I watch Justin come up with a piece, he's not like, oh, I'll just do a character drawing of this person because this character is popular. Right. Right? It's usually a compositional element. It's like, oh, I can make this plus this and this in this situation. We haven't seen that before. Wouldn't that be cool? Right? To me, that is, you know, when people are having the fan art discussion, I think there's a difference between I just can draw so I drew Gwen Stacy and now I want you to buy it versus I I am bringing a new set of skills and composition and elements oh, you know, to a property. Yeah, see, here we go. That scene of uh, when Spider-Man tries no, to I save Gwen. No, I haven't seen it. No, oh. it's not in the movie. <laughs> the famous scene okay, of yeah. Spider-Man. Oh, he reaches down to try and catch her. And he breaks her neck, but the opposite. And it's a little Peter I'm Parker. I'm sure it's been done. I'm sure, I'm sure it's been I, done. I, Justin's just thinking, how can I put something big besides something little? Yeah, big yeah. versus small. That's really what it is. Um, what was I going to say? But uh, but what you're saying is that Justin wants to put his own uh, unique spin on it, which is what really has gained you the recognition you have. You have a different... Uh, what, you have Iron Man and different you know art pieces of art, but you put your own twist into it that's what try to get your you own do. narrative your own yeah. spin your own it's, style it's not yeah. just yeah it's not just a picture by the way i think it's fun well, the funniest thing to come out of all of this is that how many people are surprised that there's more than one type of spider-man and that peter parker isn't the only spider-man right. that's something that we've anybody who's followed the comic books knows who miles morales is but not people are not aware of that large scale yeah i'm just excited they put peter porker in there i love yeah. the spider ham so you guys gotta do some spider ham Ooh. Stuff and my kids love that part as well. They want to see more. And I used to buy that book when it was actually that golden age sensibility with a spider ham, like just all that grit <laughs> and like, oh yeah, I could. I'm. I love it. I love that they went and did this. So I, I can't could wait to that. see the film. I could do a good spider ham. It would be so dark. <laughs> spider ham with the dark suit with the black suit. Oh, symbiote. Somebody, somebody must have done that. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. But, oh man, the wheels are turning. Yeah. Okay, but this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made and um, (laughs) Spider-Man. Join the fight and make comics.